0: pray even in that last song is uh, one we can pray with confidence because you have accomplished for us redemption in the son the lord jesus christ our lord you have come and stood in our place you are our substitute our mediator even now our intercessor you are our life and you are our lord and you are a king and you are our returning god and savior whom we long to be with forever help us more and more to conform to the realities Of our salvation. Help us more and more to have that heart attitude that we would die to ourselves and live for Christ, for that's where our joy is. That we would gladly yield our will in every way, our thoughts, our wants, again, every part of us, our humanity, um, to be shaped and molded by the work of your Spirit in us as it is directed by your word. So these things we pray, encourage us as we come to the table to be renewed in that commitment and that faith together, and encourage us and teach us as we consider the big picture again of your plan begun in the garden and ended in the new heavens and the new earth. We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Well, we began last week what uh, was part one of what was intended to be a, a one message, and here we are again with part two. Uh, Of what uh, we started as our ascent into the book of Revelation And we're starting by looking at a big picture The 80,000 foot flyover, as I said Of the big plan of God for creation His very purpose for making anything Which was ultimately to sum all things up under the Lord Jesus Christ Under his administration, under his headship Having reconciled all things together to himself Through Christ, through the blood of the cross And that is his big plan That's why something exists rather than nothing That's why he spoke those first words At the beginning of canonical scripture Which is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth Ultimately, so that he would unite them to himself. Well, as we look at this big picture, as I noted, we're really looking merely only at the table of contents. You know, sometimes you see a table of contents it has big headings and it has subheadings and then subheadings after that. We're only looking at the bold print, uh, the capitalized, the, the, big, the big picture headings. All of these are glorious themes and some even themes we're not going to pick up. Uh, about that that relate to this big picture of what God is doing in creation and in redemption and even right now. And again as we noted before this is what sets a biblical worldview. This is how Christians think. This is how we look at the world. This is how we understand both the present because of what we understand the future to bring because of what God has promised and again what he has accomplished in the person of Christ. And following scripture's own establishment of the picture of a garden, that's the theme and that's one of the ways that we can trace through this big picture of God's plan. Creation of man began in a garden... God set the purpose for mankind in the garden. God actually gave the ultimate hope of mankind after he fell into sin in the garden that one would come to destroy the works of the devil. God recreated the garden and the temple and the tabernacle. God recreated the conditions of walking among men in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we come to the end of the age, the picture is going to be the, the way that he paints that portrait for us. The very realities that we'll enter into are in the context of a temple and of a garden. And so that's very important for us to understand those first two chapters of Scripture. They, are, they set the foundation for everything else. And that's what we briefly considered last time. Just to recap that in, in, one, in, a, in a general statement, God created man. He created Adam and Eve. He created uh, in His image. They were to bear the image of God. They were set in a garden in a perfect environment They were set in a garden that was set apart from the rest of creation. The command was given to Adam to till that garden, to to work that garden as it were, and to do so in righteousness and obedience to his command, which was simple at that point, namely, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, only eat from the tree of life. He then created Eve and they were together to fulfill what he had established in chapter 1, namely that they were to rule over, subdue creation and rule over it. So what God began in the garden was meant to be spread throughout all of the earth. What they began there in uh, in the garden to rule over creation was through their having children through their coming together and through their multiplying and filling the earth was eventually to spread out over all that God has created so that the earth would be subdued for his glory and they would rule over creation in the place of God. He would mediate his rule through them and it would be a place of joy and flourishing and happiness and love and fellowship and abundance and beauty and all of those good things that God intended. One said this to kind of Supplement that with uh, the big picture It says, this is not to say That the coming creation replaces an original creation That God somehow failed to keep on course Renewal of both creation and humanity Rather was part of God's eternal plan It wasn't plan B It was his eternal plan The new creation represents the original Eschatological goal of creation And that is just simply to say the end goal The, the thing that God was going to do at the end Redemption shows us that this shift in the storyline is not a departure from God's plan but the unfolding of it in accordance with the mystery of his will to unite all things in heaven and earth to the praise of his glorious grace. That, That was his point from the beginning. That's what he is always working towards. That's what he is working towards even now to unite all things together in Christ to himself to the praise of the glory of his grace. Well, let's wrap up that big idea uh, this morning with point number four of the outline that was begun last week, and it is this, that the garden realities are realized in the appearance of Christ, so we had the garden in which man was created, in which God revealed his reason for creation, we put in point number two. We had the garden where that purpose was rejected by man, where we saw Satan enter in and tempt Eve and deceive Eve and then Adam to step out on his own Will outside of the will of God and sin Entered into the world and that's what we Live under is the curse and all creation Is groaning and then we noted Point number three where God began To restore that garden reality And we see that one and Through the the righteous line but ultimately in The forming of the nation and giving them the tabernacle Where God will again dwell among men Where he would walk among them he made it Possible for sinful man to enter Into this fellowship with him through the sacrament Through the priesthood and through uh, the atonement provided in those things But ultimately as we noted Israel failed Adam and Eve failed Israel failed even the most righteous of Israel failed And now how is God going to advance this plan And and that is point where we find ourselves here first That the garden realities then are realized in the appearance of Christ with the failure of Adam and Eve in the garden, with the failure of Israel, even with the tabernacle and temple among their midst, we looked at that at Isaiah chapter 5, comes the next and climactic movement forward in God bringing to realization the glories of the garden and the very purpose of creation, and this is centered in the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. With the appearance of Christ, God wasn't merely present among his creation representatively or symbolically or temporarily but personally but personally in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and we have a glorious picture of this and actually in the language of tabernacle in John chapter 1 words you're very familiar with He opens his gospel by saying in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life and the life was the light of men. He later in verse 14 tells us that this word that was eternally with God, this life that was eternally with God, this eternal life. Became flesh, verse 14, and the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glories of the only begotten, or the one and only, probably better, from the Father, full of grace and truth. With the presence of Christ, again, it was not merely a symbolic reference a presence. It was not merely a representative presence. It was the actual presence of God the eternal son Walking among men as he we re- walked among his people in the tabernacle As he was present among his people in the temple now he's present personally in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, now he is walking among the earth and among men, but no longer in a friendly environment, but in a hostile environment. We went back up to verse 5 of John chapter 1. He says, The light shines in the darkness, is now a land of darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend or overtake it, but rather the light, Christ overcame it. Now, if you look at verse 14, and many of you are familiar with that, that word dwelt is actually the term that is translated as tabernacle. It's a verb form here, but it's the same root. The idea is that he tabernacled, he was present among us. And that is, again, the language of the the temple, the language of old covenant Israel. But now, with the new glorious reality, that, that God's presence is now localized in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact... Jesus, very early into John's presentation of him in his gospel, is going to say these words as recorded by John when he is in the the temple in a discussion with the leaders. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And he says he was speaking in verse 21 of John 2, speaking of the temple of his body. Speaking of the temple of his body. And that was the beginning to say that the temple that you think is the center of God's worship is being superseded, as it were, is being fulfilled its meaning, its purpose. There's something greater than the temple that is here, something greater than the worship that you know. And it was embodied in the person of Christ. And as God's presence was manifest at the inauguration of the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40 and of the temple in 1 Kings 8 where they were established as the places or the center of worship among God's people and he filled the temple with a cloud and with his glory so that in the tabernacle not even Moses could enter in and nobody could enter in at the temple because such was the glory and the presence of God. You'll remember some, uh, just as I'll mention... That before the exile, before the destruction of the first temple, of the Solomonic temple, there was a vision that Ezekiel had and it was a vision of the glory of God leaving the temple. And that glory is never recorded as coming back, even after they returned into the land and there was the second temple, less glorious than the first, but nonetheless a second temple. But it's never recorded that the glory returned the next time in terms of scripture that we see that language is with the appearing of Christ and so with the manifestation of the, again the establishment of the tabernacle and then the temple there was this demonstration of the glory of God, now that glory is present in Christ, we beheld his glory, as the spirit of God was uniquely present in the holy of holies in the tabernacle, now he is manifest uniquely in the eternal son and flesh who John says he has the spirit without measure A fullness of the spirit that is like unknown before this time So Christ then is the fulfillment of God's intended purposes for creation in humanity The the garden is anticipating Christ The creation of man is anticipating Christ The temple is anticipating Christ He is the fulfillment of it all he is the fulfillment of the promise of redemption So let's just unfold that in a few ways And again I'm going to mention these broadly but Some ways then that Christ is the fulfillment of God's purpose in the Garden of Eden God's purpose in the reestablishment of those garden conditions in the tabernacle and temple And through the person and the work of Christ First is this Christ then is the perfect man without sin He is a second Adam He is the last Adam as we'll consider in just a moment He is what Adam should have been. He is what humanity should be. He is everything that God intended for us. It is embodied and fulfilled and made evident in the person of Christ. He is the incarnate, eternal God, the Son, the embodiment of perfect humanity. He is what humanity was created and designed to be. He is, in fact, as the Son of Man, what God intended in Adam, who is referred to as the Son of God. Just flip over briefly to Luke chapter 3. I think this is a fascinating statement. In Luke chapter 3, and particularly in verse 38, so we know there are two genealogies in the Gospels connecting Christ to his role as the Messiah. We have the first genealogy in Matthew, which comes through Joseph, who is his adopted father, to show that he is the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham and of David, that he is the one that is in the line Of the messianic promises. He is the fulfillment of it. Sometimes the one in Luke 3 is seen as coming through the line of Eve. Interestingly, there's a lot to the genealogy, but let me jump to the end. He says this. Interestingly, however, in Luke chapter 3, it says this speaking of Christ, right after the testimony, You are my beloved Son and you am well pleased, he began his ministry. And he says he was supposed, supposed to be the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. And he goes through the line, and he ends up in verse 38, and he says, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. What does he mean by that? He's simply, essentially saying this, that in Christ is the embodiment of all of humanity, what humanity was created to be. Adam was a son of God in that he was created by God to reflect God, to live in fellowship with God, to serve God, to serve God's purposes in this earth. He was connected to God in that sense. And so is the son of man, the eternal son of God, who is the son of man. He is the very embodiment of what man was to be. Consider this, in forming Adam from the dust of the ground and breathing into him life, God endowed the first man with the image of God. With the image of God. Adam, the first human, then was created to image God on earth and to live in intimate fellowship with him. That is to say that God's creation of Adam in his image was that his humanity, Adam's humanity was created in such a way to be the very substance and vehicle for the eternal Son of God to take on to Himself forever. That was anticipated in those very first words. That He breathed into Him the breath of life. He became a living being. He bore the image of God. He created Him in such a way that the Son of God, by the eternal purposes of God, would also inhabit that same humanity to draw men into fellowship. With God forever It is through the humanity His humanity That the eternal son of God Reflected the radiance of his glory And the exact representation of his nature Hebrews 1.3 It is Jesus Christ The eternal son in the flesh That is the perfect fulfillment Of what Adam was created to be As a son of God Which would also be perfectly reflected In the eternal son of God it's what Israel was created as a nation to be. He, they are called in Exodus 4.22, my firstborn, my son, he says of Israel. But all of these Adam and Israel and so on and perfect sons, one has said this, Christ as the last Adam restored all that the first Adam had lost and thereby fulfilled the original purposes of the creation of humankind in the divine image. Interestingly, then we could say this, that Christ is normal humanity. Everything else is a perversion, is a corruption of humanity. This is actually a point Jesse and I were just, whoever it is, at a conference. There was a message on that that was so helpfully brought out. But that is biblical, that is biblical understanding of humanity. Christ is normal humanity. He is what we should be. He is what every human being was created to be in terms of moral purity and character and fellowship with God and love for him. Think about this. What is the goal of our sanctification in the very end of our salvation? Romans 8.29, that we would be conformed to the image of his son. Why? Because that's what we were created to be, what Christ was. Christ is the fulfillment of that. What is the goal of our sanctification? Paul says we are to put on the new self which after the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. To the Colossians he said this we are to put on the new self who is being renewed to what? A true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Christ is the embodiment of that. He is the embodiment of what we should be. He is the embodiment of Genesis chapter 2 that he breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living being and was to live in fellowship and harmony with God. Without sin, holy, and a creation that is very good. What is the end of our resurrection? It is to be conformed to the body of his glory. It is to see him as he is, as John tells us, to be like him. You know, just as a footnote to that, we sometimes hear the statement, well, nobody's perfect, and it's true. But sometimes that's used as an excuse for sin when instead it's an indictment. But we should be. Man is called to be, but we can't be on our own. We should be perfect. We should be without sin in reflection of God's holy nature. We were intended to live that way. But in terms of our experience, what is evil is the norm. It's what we're used to. We were born born into a corrupted creation under the conditions of the fall inside of us and outside of us. But again, this is an aberration. It is a corruption of what is normal. Normal in terms of humanity is holiness, righteousness, and truth, goodness, and love. That's normal. It is to live out and reflect God's character. You shall be holy, for I am holy. But what man could not do, God did in the sending of Christ and so he is the embodiment of all that God intended for man in the garden, in the garden. And just as a little footnote, it is interesting that after Luke makes that statement, he immediately accounts Christ going into the desert and being tempted by the devil except as perfect humanity, as the perfect man who is truly God and truly man, he overcame the devil. Whereas Adam faced that temptation as a representation of man, of humanity, and he failed in that in a perfect environment. Just unfolding in one the of the multiple reflections of the glory of Christ. So Jesus Christ then is the last Adam. He's called that in 1 Corinthians 15. And I'll Let's only mention some of these very quickly, but in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, So it is written, the first, verse 45, so it is also written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. What does he mean by that? The first Adam became a living soul, and who God breathed into the breath of life, as a representative of humanity, However, failing in that task, bringing sin into the world, God sent another Adam, another representative of humanity. This is the God-man, Christ, and he became a life-giving spirit. In other words, whereas the spirit and life was breathed into the first Adam, eternal life is given and realized through Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, he says that back in verse 20. Now, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits are those who are asleep, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, in verse twenty-two, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, all who are in Christ. So he regained what Adam lost, namely eternal. Life and life with God Christ then stands by calling him As the last Adam As head and representative of a new humanity A new humanity that flows with his life Enjoys his fellowship with the Father And enjoys everything that he won for us Again where the last Adam failed As head of humanity God inhabited humanity In the person of the Son In flesh to unite humanity to God And fulfill his purposes For men And again, his eternal purpose, but let's move on to the second point. So Christ, then, is the fulfillment. He is the fulfillment of everything that God intended man to be. He is the fulfillment of everything that God expects from us, everything that he designed for us, everything that he designed for us to be, but we failed to be. Christ is the embodiment of it. Secondly, Christ is the fulfillment of the king-priest role that man was designed to be. We were designed to be king and priests to God on the creation that he gave. We were designed to rule over it. He created man to rule over it, to rule over everything that he created. He was created to be a ruler of a kingdom, the kingdom of God, which the kingdom of God in its most essential and broad sense is is this, God's rule over everything that he made. That's the most basic understanding. It's God's rule over everything that he made. He is the ultimate king. Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 5.2, heed the sound of my cry for help, my king and my God, for to you I pray. Psalm 29.10, the Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever, but here's the glory of creation. Here's the glory of the garden. Here's the glory of the creation of man. Is that... That in creation, God designed his rule and his authority to be mediated through men who bear his image. That's how he designed it. That he is the head, he is the king, he is the ruler, but he has given us the vice-regent position, as it were, to rule in his stead among men. That was the original purpose. Again, Genesis 1.28, subdue it. Rule over it every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam and Eve, Adam was made to be a king and Eve was made to be a queen over all of creation. Now God began to restore this kingly rule that was abdicated by Adam in his sin, failing to uphold his responsibility. He began to establish this, really you could argue through the righteous line, but primarily in... The formation of the monarchy of Israel and King David And King David with whom he made a covenant It was through the line that God promised through King David That a king would rule over a people that God would form by covenant To himself Let me just give you a few examples, Psalm 2.6 But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion My holy mountain There were inferior Pictures of that through all of the Davidic line of kings But ultimately this is pointing to the king that all of them are anticipating The end of the promise, the son Psalm 89, 3-4 I've made a covenant with my chosen I've sworn to David my servant I will establish your seed forever And build up your throne to all generations There was a king that the people expected to come to rule over the people We say it at Christmas, Isaiah 9-6 a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Ezekiel 37, referring to a people after they've been in exile, after they've returned to the land, a people yet in the future that have yet to be realized that this is the promise. My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd. Christ was identified as king at every point in his life when he was announced by the Magi. They said, we are searching for the one who is to be king of the people Israel. He confessed this, Christ did in his own life when he stood before Pilate and he said, are you a king? He says, I am a king, but it's not of this realm. But yes, I am a king. He was identified mockingly as a king in his crucifixion as the sign hung over his head. Here is the king of the Jews. Said mockingly, but true. In the apostles, he is the king. We read it this morning. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. At his return, he is recognized as the king. The king of king again and the Lord of lords in Revelation 19. So Jesus Christ, then, is the fulfillment of God's purpose to rule, for man to rule as in the garden. He is the fulfillment of the Davidic promise to rule over a renewed and redeemed people, a new humanity that he would bring about. Let me just emphasize this. We don't have time to spend a lot here, but just if you're Psalm 8. I just want to connect two passages for you and to see how this is, in fact, a fulfillment of creation, of God's creation design. This isn't something new. This is what man should have been. Psalm 8, he says this, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've displayed your splendor in heaven. He says, verse three, when I consider the work of the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars, what is man that you take thought of him? Verse five, yet you have made him a little lower than God. And that's the better translation. And you crown him with glory and majesty. Who? Man. Man created in your image. And what have you done? You have made him to rule over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. Who? That's what man's original purpose was. You've done that. He has your image. He rules in your stead. He reflects your glory and your majesty. He rules over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. Again, that was not realized because of sin, but if you want to follow along, you can flip over to the book of Hebrews. In extolling the glory of Christ, this is exactly what the writer takes up. He says in verse 5 of chapter 2, He did not subject the angels to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, sound familiar? What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. They are making a point, borrowing some from a Septuagint translation. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and you have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things into subjection to his feet. Who is he talking about there? There he's saying that's God's purpose for man. But he's going to make a switch. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subjected to him. But now we do not see all things subjected to him. But... Verse 9, we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation Through sufferings, this is essentially to say this That man was created to rule, man was created to be a king over the earth Man failed in that, in the embodiment of humanity by the eternal son of God Who is the radiance of his glory, who made propitiation for our sins Man was restored, but now under the headship of the true king The true Lord, Jesus Christ, who is the king over all of creation He is the fulfillment of that purpose for man to rule over the earth. He is the king of the kingdom of God. He is the ruler of all men. He is the one whom God always designed to be the head of creation. Let me just mention here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the preeminent one, of all creation, all things were created by Him, and the heavens are on earth, visible and invisible thrones or dominions or rulers, all things have been created through him and for him. Again, that's the garden. That's before before we read Genesis 2 and he breathed into the breath of life. This is God's plan. It was created through Christ. It was created for him and he is before all things. He's picking up the idea of the firstborn and in him all things hold together. He's head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. He himself might come to have first place in everything, Verse 20, through him to reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of the cross and so forth. This was God's plan. This is God's plan in the garden and in Christ, the kingship of man, the rule of man, the headship of man over all of creation finds its ultimate meaning and purpose in him. Let's take this even just a bit more in the third point of this. So he is the fulfillment of humanity what his man humanity was to be. He is the accomplishment, and the fulfillment of God's original purpose for man to rule as king over creation. Christ stands as that king, as head over all creation, and we rule with him. i mention that later. But thirdly, Christ's perfect obedience then, as the perfect God-man culminated in his atoning death, which was entered and accomplished through another garden, the garden of Gethsemane. So it's not merely that he appeared, and by his appearing all these things came about. There was a particular way that God would accomplish this. There was a particular way in which the glory of God and the glory of the obedience of the sinless Son of God would bring about the glory that would ultimately be centered on Christ and shared with all those who are in him, as those who belong to him. Whereas the first Adam led humanity into sin through disobedience, the second Adam would deliver them from sin and create a new humanity through his obedience. Philippians 2, he was obedient even though he existed in the form of God, took on the form of a slave, being found in the appearance as a man. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here I just want to make this connection. That the greatest and climactic portrait of the perfect humanity of the Son of God in flesh was the garden of Gethsemane. Another garden, it is interesting. He walked towards the cross through a garden. He was raised from the grave and a garden. There's, a, I think, an intentional connection here. But here his perfect humanity was shown. How does he bring all this about? The prayer, he says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And he prayed that prayer in the full realization of what that meant. He knew he had come to die. He said that earlier in John, for this purpose I came. For this purpose I have been sent. This is the very reason I'm here. And then he said from that, Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. How? Through the cross and the work of the cross. That was the will of the Father. He knew it. His perfect humanity is that he submitted in the full realization of what that meant, both in the immediate suffering and not merely the crucifixion, but the bearing of the sin of all of those whom God would redeem. In the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He also knew what it meant and what the ultimate outcome of that would be, which would be the resurrection and forming a people who would be joined to himself and enjoying all of the benefits that he has brought in salvation. He knew that it meant bearing our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He knew that it meant that he who knew no sin would be made sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. His taking on humanity then was to redeem humanity through his sin-bearing sacrifice. Uh, Again in Hebrews 2.17 Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest In things pertaining to God To make propitiation for the sins of his people To bear wrath bearing death One said this on that verse Connecting to our theme Man created by God for his glory Was prevented by sin from attaining that glory Until the Son of Man came and opened up by his death A new way By which humanity might reach the goal for which it was made. As his people's representative and forerunner, he has now entered into the presence of God to secure their entry there. That's what he accomplished for us. That was his perfect obedience, was that he might, as man... Not only fulfill ultimately our purposes as King and Head over all things, not only fulfill the ultimate purposes by living a life of perfect obedience to the Father and perfect righteousness, but in that perfect obedience and fulfillment of the will of the Father might become our substitute, satisfying the justice of God through his wrath averting death, the propitiation for our sin, and reconciling us to God. Which was God's purpose? It was God's purpose all along. Lastly, on this point, Christ as God then brings about the perfect and permanent union and fellowship between man and God. So we share and participate in his accomplishments. This is the glory of it. This is the glory of it. This is what we remember in the Lord's table, by the way. Let's just briefly consider this. Through the resurrection then, which took place again in a garden, and by the receiving of the promise of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.33, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He received the promise of the Holy Spirit. That is what was poured out on the day of Pentecost. That is what has been on earth as God fulfills his purposes in uniting the people to himself, forming the body of Christ through Christ, uniting people through Christ to himself. But it means this, that in doing that, God inaugurated, he began, he established a new humanity, a new humanity that is bound to the humanity of the risen and ascended and glorious Christ. Consider some of the language then of why, of how this connects with us. Let me just give you a few. Uh, often this language is spoken of by Paul with a little word word. Uh, attached, a little preposition, with, with often attached to a word or included in the idea let me just give you a few ideas what does that mean? it means this, that we are united to Christ in this way so that what Christ accomplished we who know him participate in we participate in again, listen to just a few of these I'm going to read them Romans 6, 4 we died with him his death was our death his suffering was our suffering His anguish was our anguish. In other words, it was meant for us. It was in our place. We were counted there as our sins being punished in him is the idea. In him. It was our charges that were essentially laid to his account for us we died with him but we also Romans 6:8 shall live with him through the resurrection Romans 8:17 we shall be glorified with him Romans 8:32 how will he being the father not also with him Christ give us all things freely that all things freely is everything that God has promised to us in Christ every promise in Christ that is yes and amen in him That's what we have. It's ours. Oh, if we could only realize this, if I could realize this, if you could realize this, Paul realized it and said, I don't consider the sufferings of this world worthy to be compared with the glories to come. He also said this. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He later said to the Colossians, with Christ We have died, and our life is hidden, and when He, Christ, who is our life, is revealed, we will be revealed with Him in glory. He overcame this world and sin, and we, in Christ, are overcomers. He perfectly obeyed the Father for us, and His obedience is credited to us through faith. That's justification. He died to sin and rose to life, defeating death. We died in him and live with him in union by the Spirit. He reigns over all creation. We will reign with him over the new heavens and the new earth. He possesses the new creation. We possess it with him. Listen to one fascinating verse. And I'm saying this, but I'm going to mention it quickly. Again, these are the big headings of the table of contents. But in Paul dealing with divisions that were in the church in Corinth, and uh, dealing specifically with these divisions and this one-upmanship and those kind of things, he says this, listen, at the end of Colossians Uh, First Corinthians chapter 3 he says so then let no one boast in men listen for all things belong to you whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God he says why are you fighting over these things everything belongs to all of you already. Because you belong to Christ, and it belongs to Christ, and therefore it belongs to you, and therefore it's all yours. God has given it to you freely in Christ. This kind of division and biting and devouring is foolish. He says there, you belong to Christ, Christ belongs to God, and everything belongs to us in Christ. That's the glory of what will begin to unfold in Revelation And that's how it was always intended to be. Creation was made for man. To rule over, to live on, to subdue, to flourish. Now God's presence is mediated through the church. That that presence of God that was evident in the garden and lost, that was reestablished in the tabernacle and the temple, that was ultimately established in the person of Christ, was then reestablished through the sending of the Spirit. And now the church is, in essence, God restoring those garden conditions, even in the very life that he has given to us. Again, these are obviously big themes, but let me just read one passage to you. You might have others going through your head, but here's this one. In Ephesians chapter 2, he brought in making one new man, the Jew and the Gentile, together. Through him we both, that is, Jew and Gentile, have our access in one spirit to the Father, no longer strangers and aliens, fellow citizens with the saints. And he's saying this in terms that there used to be a divide. That There used to be the Gentiles who were without God. They, they didn't have any of the promises. They didn't have the temple. They didn't have anything. But now both Jew and Gentile together have Christ, and in Christ are one new man. So... The temple doesn't mean anything or never having known the temple, faith in Christ brings us into this one singular condition of reconciliation to God and of forgiveness and hope and promise and access to the Father. There is no special privilege in that sense. And so he says, you are are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household and having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. You are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That's what the temple represented. That's what should have been happening in the garden and that is what is happening now inaugurated through the Death, the resurrection and the ascension of Christ who is now our intercessor who has sent the spirit, who unites us to him and it is what God will accomplish in the fullness in the new heavens and the new earth. And interestingly, God is building the membership of his family now, not by natural birth but by spiritual birth. As people are brought into the kingdom of God by the work of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit who produces in us faith, faith that unites us to Christ that brings us into possession of his life, that brings us access to God through the Spirit, who is a pledge, a down payment of our inheritance, and who assures us that we will reach the end. Even though we live in hostile territory. Let me note last here as we come to the table. The garden is restored then at the end of the age, and that's what we're anticipating. So this is the already not yet reality. We already possess The glories of salvation, we already possess the presence of the spirit, we already possess reconciliation with God, we already possess justification by faith, we are made righteous in him, we already possess the promise that we have been sanctified positionally, we are being sanctified progressively, but we will in our ultimate perfected state be sanctified completely and wholly in Christ. And that's what we anticipate on the new heavens and the new earth. So here it is, the garden is restored at the end of the age. The garden is restored at the end of the age. We have the first fruits, the the taste of it, the down payment of it. But all that does for us is fill us with hope and the desire to know what we realize so imperfectly here. If you know Christ, you know something of fellowship of God. If you know Christ, you know something of the sweetness of forgiveness of sin. If you know Christ, you know something of the, the taste of seeing his glories and his beauty in scripture. And the realities of who he is. But they're short-lived. It's not to the fullness of who he actually is. It's so easily forgotten. And we so easily sin against him. Whom we love. It's not everything that it should be. We already have it. But it's not yet completed. It's not yet full. We have been justified. And we will be justified. We have been sanctified. We will be sanctified. There's a future reality to what we hope for. This is what we're going to look at next week in the way that that the end, the eschatology fits into the life of the Christian, of the people of God. The people of God who are still on earth live by hope, by hope. And our hope is that all that God began in the garden Restored in Christ will be fulfilled at the end of the age So it's no surprise then that the description of the culmination of God's purposes on earth The full realization of his accomplishments and redemption in Christ are set forth in the language and the imagery of the garden and the temple That was his purpose all along Is to image his purposes through the garden and through the temple and the reestablishment of the conditions for which man was created So just flip over briefly to Revelation chapter 21 And we'll just have to look at this for just a minute before we come to the table. So, how does it wrap up? What's the end of the story? What is the end of the story? What is everything working towards? It's this I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. That struck me this week, actually just after, especially the wedding of Jason and Dana, and then always remembering our wedding. Uh, I don't really really remember much of the ceremony, just as a little footnote here, uh, of our wedding, quite frankly. Um, I'm glad we wrote our vows down. (laughs) Um, I don't even remember much of any of that, but I do remember this, that's burned into my mind, of watching Trish walk down the aisle. Standing there in her white dress and her glory. And I thought she was the most beautiful heavenly vision I'd ever seen walking down that aisle. And I think husbands would say that. I think, Jason, you better say that. He was just married, (laughs) especially after that video he posted on Facebook. What a beautiful picture. This is the glory of the New Jerusalem made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. A glorious picture. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold the tabernacle of God among men. And here's the key. He will dwell. And there's our word again. He'll tabernacle among men. He'll tent, as it were, among men. He'll be present among men. And they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am. And making all things new. And he said write for these words are faithful and true. What is the end? The end is what it should have been at the beginning. God dwelling among men who bear his image. That's the whole purpose. That's always been the purpose. That man who bears his image would live in fellowship with him. In nearness with him. And yet the ultimate end of that was far more glorious than what could even have been realized in the garden. Adam wasn't in union with Christ. Adam didn't have even the same glories that we as the church have. This is even more glorious, but the ultimate intent. God will create then a new Jerusalem, her citizens. He will unite them to himself. This is why he uses the language of family. Look at verse seven. Our adoption comes to its full realization. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. Does that cause you to go back to Luke chapter 3? Adam was created to be a son of God. Does it take you back to Israel? was created to be God's son. Does it take you back to Christ who was the fulfillment of where they all failed? Who is the eternal son of God? The very archetype, if you will. The progenitor of those reflected glories of Adam and Israel are embodied in the person of Christ and now in Christ we participate in this very eternal relationship that he has with the Father as the Son of God so that God will declare over all of those who are with him in this new heaven and new earth as he does even now for those who are adopted in him who have the spirit of adoption I will be his God and he will be my son as it was always intended to be As it was accomplished and made to be in Christ And guess what As that was reflected in some way In the marital union of Adam and Eve Who would be in the covenant of marriage Who would enjoy all of that Is meant to picture The very ending of the words Of God's good creation Is that they were as a married couple Naked and unashamed In complete holiness and glory And delight and harmony and joy In God's creation That's a picture of our Fellowship with God and so he uses a marriage to picture that again. He already did back in chapter 19 He pictured that as the the marriage of the son He says let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready We are the bride Paul talks about that of course in Ephesians 5 and here he says again that we are a bride adorned for Christ to live in the most intimate, close, pleasurable, harmonious, and delightful fellowship with him. And Notice that the angel took him, to a, John, to a great and high mountain. There's a footnote here in verse 10 to see these things. And I, and I just want to mention this a bit in anticipation of even next week. I, that struck me recently. He took him to a great and high mountain. What is significant about that? Simply this as an observation. You remember when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the garden? What did Satan do? Do you remember? He took him to a great and a high mountain, and he showed him all of the glories of the kingdoms, and he says, these have been given to me, and I'll give them to you if you fall down and worship me. Now, Christ is the very embodiment of humanity, the very one born to be a king, and who is a king, and who would be king, rightly owned all of those things, but there was a certain way that it had to come about in obedience to the Father, And here, though Jesus saw all that glory and said, no, but that's not the right kind of glory and it's not in the right kind of way, I'm going to worship the Father alone. And even if that means the cross, that's what I'm going to do. And I will achieve it as God intended it to be achieved. But here, John is taken to a great and he sees this great high mountain and he showed him the glory of the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Jesus knew that's what he was accomplishing He knew that city was coming and that city was better than this world. And so he endured to the end. And in in a sense, that's what the saints are doing too. He says, those who didn't love their life, even unto death. They didn't love this world. They are willing to leave this world, give their lives that they may attain to this glory. The glory of the new Jerusalem. And so Jesus creates this new Jerusalem, interestingly, and again, just mentioning, after the pattern of the earthly tabernacle. If sure, you remember in Hebrews 10, he says they, the tabernacle had to be made exactly as God said. Why? Because it was representing heavenly realities. And so he was very purposeful, very specific. And here is the unfolding of the glories of those in their ultimate end. And that is this, that there's a new Jerusalem, and we won't go through all the descriptions, but merely to say this, it is a perfect cube. One noted that there's only two perfect cubes mentioned in Scripture. The Holy of Holies and here in the new Jerusalem. And the new heavens and the new earth. And to be in this most holy place in the Old Testament was to be in the most direct contact with the presence of God. This nearness was brought forth in, in a new and wonderful way in the again in the resurrection of Christ, in the sending of the Spirit in the Church. But it's not realized but it will be realized here where we will as God's people in the imagery here of the temple Dwell in his presence in the nearest possible proximity and intimacy and fellowship and joy Unending not able to lose it because we have it in union with Christ Adam had it on his own and he lost it We have it in union with Christ. It cannot be lost because it's already been won He is our righteousness There's no way. There's no fear of sin. You won't be a million years in heaven and go, oh, I hope I don't sin and lose all this. Impossible. It's not even a thought. Perfect harmony with God. No barrier, someone describes it, stands between God and those who dwell in this city, recalling how Adam and Eve knew God prior to their expulsion from the garden, but now will know it forever in truth. Listen to chapter 22. He showed me a river, the water of life. picturing there probably the rivers flowing out of... Eden, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb and in the middle of the street on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and here it is there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and hear this, they will see his face and his name Will be on their foreheads What's the picture there of ownership Nearness Belonging to God In Christ And that is our hope and desire And that's God's purpose And that's what we remember in the table As we come to it We're to be reminded of this If you remember the words of Paul In 1 Corinthians He said this We are to proclaim the Lord's death What's the last part? Until he comes Until he comes Until he comes That doesn't mean we're out of fellowship with him now. He, Right now, we have been raised with him. We're seated with him at the right hand of the Father. He is making intercession for us. He is a merciful and a faithful and a sympathetic high priest right now. That is his ministry to us now through the Spirit and in the presence of God. We have fellowship with him. He says, if you keep my commandments, I'll come and make my abode in you. And the Father will come and make his home within his people Ultimately realized in this place, and so we remember this in the table, when we come, remember that God has called us to a glorious future. and so we are thanking God for that. We are confessing our own weakness and sin here and asking Him to help us to commit and live in light of this glorious reality of our salvation and to fill our hearts with a sense of the love of God. We sang about it the. the the height and the depth, the length and the breadth of the love of God in Christ Jesus so that we would know that, so we would walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called so that we would know this fellowship. And we say, God, please, please open my eyes to understand these things. Help me to see it that I could live more for you and not be so distracted by the things of this world and not live so often according to my own will but subdue everything in me to be for your glory. And for your kingdom And that's a process It's a painful process sometimes But it's one that has an end And will be over And that's what we wait for So let's pray as the men bring forward the elements And then we'll pass them out And remember the table together Father thank you For this your word Thank you for accomplishing what we could not Left to our own we're dead Left to our own we're condemned In Christ we have a life And it's by your doing And such is the great banner of scripture that we rejoice in. Salvation is from the Lord. And so we delight to give you all of the glory for it and anticipate to be with you forever. Thank you for this table. Thank you for giving us a symbol to remind us we need it. We're so forgetful. Encourage our hearts to that end. To your glory in the name of Jesus, amen.